Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Wherever you are, this is the Interpreter's Workshop Podcast. I'm Tim Curry, your host. Here we talk everything sign language interpreting. The ins, the outs, the ups, the downs, the sideways of interpreting. If you're a student, a new interpreter, experienced interpreter, this is the place for you. If you want to know more, go to interpretersworkshop.com. Let's start talking interpreting. And now the quote of the day, which is usually attributed to the Greek philosopher Socrates. Smart people learn from everything and everyone. Average people from their experiences. Stupid people already have all the answers. This quote reminds us that while we must have confidence and faith in what we believe, we must have the integrity to let go of those answers which are not absolute, as we learn from everything and everyone in our travels in this life, we change the answers that we have. Today's guest, Sharon Newman-Solo, will continue telling us her story of how she left the USA teaching and interpreting, and how that changed her view of our profession and our view of how we teach interpreting. So I ask you to open your minds and open your hearts to more learning. So we've talked a lot about the U.S. and, of course, interpreting in general. But when you first went to another country, interpreting or whether it was teaching, what about your travels has influenced you as an interpreter? Everything. Everything. When I began working internationally, um, and I worked, I have really been blessed by working in so many countries and continents. And I've just felt, I feel very, very fortunate. But here's what the biggest lesson was. I was working with interpreters in Italy and I was doing a training. And at that time in the history of the United States, our approach to interpreting was labeled the machine model. We were trying to disappear like a robotic kind of approach. Yes, the sound comes in, the sign comes out. The sign comes in, the word comes out. But it wasn't as deeply meaning-based as we hope we are today. But more importantly, it was not as human as we hope we are today. So we were sort of trying to pretend we weren't there. The metaphor was, just think of me as a telephone. And that model carried, that it had some good value. It came out of a previous model, which we labeled the helper model, where all the interpreters were coming in to save deaf people and help them to survive, which had its own place too, because there was a time when deaf people were highly oppressed and it was a very different world. So every model had reasons that were not ridiculous, that were good reasons, but we had a huge swing away from the helper model to this machine model where what we were trying to do was to get out of the picture, to not be a part of what was going on in a sense. 
And we took it pretty far. And we expected people to treat us as if we were machines. And there was a time when an interpreter would commonly be interpreting and the hearing person might say, oh, and what is your name to the interpreter? And the interpreter would sign, oh, and what is your name? But would not answer because we were not there. So anyway, that was a very dramatic example of don't be ridiculous. We were ridiculous. And I was in that phase when I went to Italy the first time, which was a very, very long time ago. Thank you. And I realized that so much of what I did and taught was tied to the machine model because it included, you know, don't you sign that that way. You sign it this way. The exact hand shape was so important to me and that kind of thing. And when I went to Italy, it was kind of like I didn't know Italian sign language, so I couldn't really be very critical about how well they signed. Uh, anyway, I didn't know anything, so it it made me really, really come in with my philosophy about being a student who's a teacher who's a teacher who's a student. And I learned to distance myself from all that minutia, all those little things, the details, and look at the whole picture of interpreting. And it created for me the idea that I'm still working on. It's a book that I'm writing called Five Things You Can Do Now to Improve Your Interpreting. I don't know if it's going to have that title when it's done, but those five things, I started working on this book in 1980. Two or 83 or 84. I mean, it was a long, long time ago. But those five things were the big, bigger picture things related to interpreting that I hadn't been looking at. And they were, do we process the material? Do we think about what it means before we sign it or before we say it? Do we use transitions and pausing and cohesion and prosody well? Do we use space properly? Do we structure things spatially properly? And then confidence, you know, like, do we come at this work with confidence? Do we appear confident, our demeanor, our behavior? Those five things. Oh, memory. The other one, this is ironic. Memory was the other one that I forgot to mention. We have to learn to trust our memory <laughs> so that we give ourselves time to receive the meaning before we start to put out the interpretation. So those five things came to me specifically because I worked with Italian interpreters whose languages I didn't know. And I was able to, I could see suddenly that this was how I could help them to grow as interpreters by noticing and reinforcing those things. That's a wonderful experience to know how it influenced basically everything since. Yes. The other thing I've learned from international interpreting mm -hmm. and teaching both is just, um, you know, in television and in movies, there's been an, a funny phrase that people use very in a very affected way, like I'm very important. And they'll say, oh, travel is so broadening, meaning I broaden my life by travel. But it's true. Travel is broadening. All my travel has helped me understand that there are so many different views, different perspectives, but also that everyone's experience from the very start is not the same. And so 
I can't bring my paradigm, you know, my picture of exactly what interpreting is, I can't bring that to another country, to another community, not even within the United States, but certainly not elsewhere. It's like the teaching example I gave. I have to bring some structure and some great questions. And then I have to help them to think about what it means for them in their world. And that gift was given to me in part by my travel in Europe and other countries. It wasn't only that that gave that to me. It was also those wonderful mentors. But my travel reinforced it, changed the way I perceived it, gave me some grounding for that, deeper understanding. Very helpful. And I just plain learned a lot from my colleagues in other countries. Just so much. I interviewed a Scottish interpreter, uh, Bruce Cameron, who's also a CODA, and I was using word association, and I asked him the word interpreting. His first reaction was not sign language interpreting. It was about interpreters in a booth doing spoken language interpreting. For him, that was interpreting. Do you understand what he means as a CODA yourself? Huh. I'm not sure, but I think that in the world that the interpreter in the booth is very much the stereotype or the the universal image of an interpreter there is there's so much to that because the reason they're in a booth is because it's one-way communication it's not two-way communication kind of i mean even in the un there's some going back and forth, but I just mean it's very much, it's very formal. It's very structured. So much of the work we do is informal. And I mean by that, not that we're hanging out uh, at the at the bar or at the pub, but that we are interpreting in more uh, casual environments. You know, we don't have microphones. Most people aren't necessarily wearing suits and ties. People are, in even in doctor's offices, it's more casual in any community interpreting. So I can imagine that that when you say interpreter, it's like you see in your mind those interpreters in the booth. For him, he did think, well, for me, I've been doing this all my life. Now, mind you, he did not become an interpreter until he was in his 30s. For him, sign language is just, it's its normal. It's my language, you know, that sort of thing. But did you have that similar feeling when you first started interpreting? Yeah, I think for me, because I started so young and in such a structured environment and in a doctoral program, So I think if I had started in the community for real, you know, like hanging out, interpreting for doctor's appointments and teacher meetings with parents and the things I did all my life with my own parents, if I continued to do that professionally, the line might not have been as dramatically clear. But for me, the line was exceptionally clear because it was nothing like anything I had done before. And the subject matter was nothing like anything I had ever heard about before. My first class that I interpreted was research statistics. Hello. It was really out of my range. So I don't think that's true for me, but I can understand 
when you move in the same ways in your world and then you just do it professionally, it doesn't feel like much of a difference. It doesn't feel like much of a shift. But for me, it was a huge shift. And then the second step of my work, which was at NTID, I was in another town. I was in another world. I was in another enclosed environment. You know, I was in a college, not in the community. So I think for me, my entry into the profession was much more like I got into a rocket ship. They put the fuel in. They didn't tell me much about where I was going, and then they lit the rockets, and I landed on on interpreting planet. I didn't have this. I it didn't feel like normal to me. It felt like whoa, where am I, and how do I do this? The one part that felt normal was right. I know that when I hear words, I have to sign them. I did know that part. Uh-huh. And when I see people sign, I have to tell other people what they meant. <laughs> that part stayed normal. <laughs> uh. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. If you have any ideas for the podcast, contact me at interpretersworkshop.com. For now, let's go back. How can we blend those two things into a university setting so that it feels natural and normal, but yet professional, connected to that community in that normal way? Is that possible to do? I imagine everything's possible. I I do. I imagine it is possible. I, I think, you know... What came to mind is what I was saying earlier about an internship or a practicum experience where you bring the student out into the community. But before that, all through the training program, you try, I think a good program tries to bring the community into the program. And wouldn't it be beautiful if the people, they don't all have to be CODAs, but the people in the training who have a community outside of the training of deaf people. So they might be CODAs, they might be parents who have a deaf child and learn sign language, they might be teachers who decided to become interpreters. If they were genuinely invited to bring their world into the the training experience, I think that has not always been done. I suspect somebody's done that, but it would be really interesting to say to the CODAs in the training, how would your parents feel about coming in and joining us for a discussion of some sort? How would your siblings, your deaf siblings feel about coming or, you know, whatever. And then if they were okay with that, to come, to invite them. And, you know, one thing I have enjoyed in my career has been when we bring folks in for a more casual, you know, or or not so casual, you know, to, to come and share their thoughts and maybe to practice with us and then have all the students cook food and bring food and just give the students an opportunity to show their appreciation in whatever way they can. Um, sometimes also I've had participants or students or who have made a little thank you gift. I love it when it's something they made, but I think when the students can have more ownership of this um, time that is gifted to them in a way that they're trained 
to show their appreciation. They're given opportunities to show their appreciation. It depends on where they are developmentally. They might not need to be trained, but they might be needing to have an opportunity. They might not need an opportunity. They might need to just understand what it would look like to do it. You know, there's stages. But if we could let them be actively grateful. Yes, yes. It would be reinforcing to the folks Mm -hmm. who came in. It would be reinforcing to the students. And it's so satisfying. You know, people like to be fed. People like to be well-treated. People like little gifts, you know, little gifts, nothing big. But they, they wouldn't expect to get a computer or something. But, you know, to have a little handmade card even or a a beautiful card that the students chose for them, even if it wasn't handmade. I had one, um, we were training in Hawaii. And this is the greatest system, by the way, it worked out beautifully. The person that helped us organize this thing was just a genius. And she encouraged us to hire uh, a little couple. They were quite a bit older. They were probably in their 70s or 80s. And they were quite a bit older than the students. And we hired them to do all the little things. They they brought in the lunches. They kept the drinks cold or hot. We paid for everything, but they created the space for everybody to enjoy their meals and all that. And the husband, the man, hand-carved wooden um, Hawaiian things, you know, turtles and wow. I love you mm-hmm. hands. And when I found out about that, I asked him if they were for sale and he said, yes. And I said, okay, great. And I told all the students, listen, this guy's got stuff for sale and everybody bought them. Now, did they all need or want an I love you pin? No, but that was a way of showing their appreciation and it wasn't expensive. So I also think it's important to find out how we can support the deaf people back, you know, give back to them. So if we can't afford to buy what they sell, for example, we we introduce them to people who can. I personally brought back an entire bag full because I just thought it was a beautiful thing. And my kids were excited. My grandkids were excited. My friends liked them. It was a great gift to bring home. But even if it hadn't been, I would have bought some. And so you help create opportunities from both sides. That's what I think would be a beautiful thing. There's so much more, yeah. but that's where I'll Establishing those relationships early on in the journey of these new interpreters. Those connections are key to finding their own mentors. And you know, I just thought of one other thing. It was really important how we treated that deaf couple. I don't think it was conscious, but I'm not a newbie. So for me, it would be natural. But my colleagues were deaf interpreters. My two training colleagues were deaf interpreters. And the three of us treated them. They were our, I mean, some people could have treated them like they were our cleaning people, right? Our janitors. But we treated them like royalty. We were so thrilled and honored to have them. And they were so tickled. They were so happy to be there because they were on limited income and we were paying them to be there. So they were thrilled to have that little extra money. Everybody treated them with deep respect. And so they just walked away bigger and taller every day. They were so pumped up, you know, by being with us. And we were so pumped up by being with them. And I think that 
it was just so natural. But if it isn't, the teachers have to lead in that way. They have to treat people a certain way so that everybody else sees, oh, that's how we treat our guests. Okay. And it was also a beautiful thing because the students had an opportunity to practice because they had to ask these deaf people Mm -hmm. for what they needed. They had to understand what the deaf person was telling them. They had opportunities to practice every minute. I had a dream at one time about campus of a university and having all the employees be deaf, everyone from the janitors to the president of the university. And I don't mean that to be levels, but they are somewhat different in status in our country. But the idea was to have, you know, everyone, the drivers, everyone be deaf. And then you bring deaf, you bring hearing students to this campus and they they move to, we don't have a country. ASL doesn't have a country. If I want to learn French, I can go to France. I can go to several other countries and I can learn French by being in that country and immersed. And we don't have that in any signed language. We don't have. Gallaudet is not a country. Gallaudet doesn't give you that. It's good. It's good. But it doesn't have that isolation. You know, you can always find English. So it's a beautiful thing if we can create more and more opportunities where people feel like they've come into the bubble called that signed language country. And we don't, we can't communicate any other way. And just like small children, you know, when you have a bilingual home, small children figure out really young that they don't have to speak that other language. They can speak whatever the language is that they want to. And you can't change that because they know. Well, the same thing's true. When you go to a community and they're all deaf, there's no pretending you really are deaf. I have to really sign. Mm -hmm. So those students are forced into a mindset of communication that we want them to learn. So I love that when it's really just like I said before, we want real life experience for our students. This is a real life demand. You must sign because everybody here is deaf. You must understand sign language because everybody here is signing, but not because it's some fake thing, false thing, made up thing. It's because it's real. They're all deaf, which is why you go to a deaf event. It's fun to listen to Sharon's stories, isn't it? Let me take a few points out of this to give you something to take home. Travel truly made her broaden her perspective on interpreting. She came to Italy with the answer in her mind that interpreting or interpreters behave according to the machine model. And that answer was changed after this experience. She realized that she couldn't actually teach the signs or how to interpret from language to language. So she went to the underlying skills of interpreting those that we use to process, that we use to determine what the interpretation will look like. And those are so broad that they can be used in any language, region, or country. And that allowed her to realize that, hmm, interpreting is not the machine model. Each of those behavioral models were good for that time period. They had good reasons behind them but they changed 
when we realized these are not absolute answers. And that's a good point. As teachers, we cannot bring our absolute ideas to our students because we know history tells us that over time these ideas, these answers may be adjusted. So, this doesn't only apply to traveling to other countries, but traveling to the communities we serve, which is why Sharon says we must bring the community to the students and the students to the community. In order to have that exchange of learning, of adjusting our answers and our beliefs about what it is we do. So let's all be smart people. I hope that gave you more to think about. Until next week, when we end this interview with the final episode with Sharon Newman Solo. I'll see you then. Take care now. <laughs>